Northern Seminary and the Center for Theological Integrity. This is the pastor's table. Today's church leaders are weary and burnt out from trying to lead in the machine of corporate leadership systems. The pastor's table brings you conversations with local pastors working out deep theological convictions in their churches. Here are your hosts, Reverend Tara Beth Leach and Dr. Mark Quanstrom. Welcome to the pastor's table. I'm Tara Beth Leach. And I am Mark Quanstrom. And we are living some adventure these days. Uh, yeah. Last week, we talked about Northern Seminary and some of the distress the seminary finds itself under. Uh, staff filed a grievance against the president. Board of Trustees took a long time in investigating it, uh, resulting in the president's resignation and the appointment of an interim president um, with allegations left unanswered at this point. Students have expressed their opinion about it. Faculty and staff are on one page uh, regarding the, we're identifying and understanding and are sympathetic to the allegations. Um, and it has resulted in Roy's report, reported on it, a board of trustee member resigned and Baptist News Global reported on similar behavior by the president and church he pastored prior to coming to Northern. So uh, that's where that has been the occasion for this conversation about the fallenness of this world. Beth, do you want to comment on any of that that I mentioned? I think just to say, you know, when these uh, hard times hit us in places we love, uh, we feel it deeply and it makes us want to talk about why and how things are so broken. Yeah, and I think we're, we're kind of, we're, I think we're usually blindsided by it. Um, so uh, the Baptist News Global came out with this article uh, yesterday, the 23rd. So it'll be four days from the time you hear this podcast. Um, and <clears throat> I'm keeping the staff at College Church informed of all of this because it's taking up so much of my time. And uh, one of my staff members who came from another church and suffered similar kinds of leadership abuse uh, texted me after she read the article, I sent it to all the staff, that it was really hard for her to read because it reminded her of how she had suffered under a leader who uh, abused his power. And, I, and most of us, I think, are blindsided by this happening in churches and happening in Christian institutions. I think that's fair to say. It's disorienting. Um, I mean, I noticed right away in the article from Baptist News that, you know, one of the ministers commented that it's really, really, really hard to come to terms when ministers and pastors and institutional leaders are not who we thought they were. I just had a conversation with a gentleman this afternoon um, at a nail salon, and he asked me what I do. I told him I was a pastor, and I was clear that he had a Christian background. And so I said to him, I said, are you Christian? And he said, I am. And I said, well, what's, what church do you attend? He said, oh, he said, I used to attend a church in the city in Chicago, and hmm. it got real political. And he said there was division and infighting 
and abuse of power. And he said, I haven't been since. Mm -hmm. And he said that this was well before COVID. And so, so much is at stake here. Our witness, the people that we're shepherding, it's hurtful. Well, and we I think we mentioned last week that all of us around the table, and I think it's, I'm not speaking out of turn uh, to include Beth in this, all of us have suffered um, the assertion of power over against us in ways that would be considered less than Christian. Is that fair? Seems fair. That that we would we were blindsided by how we were acted upon because it seemed incongruous with what it would mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's right. So I think one of the reasons we find ourselves here is we do underestimate, and this podcast is about living out the practical implications and applications of our faith. One of the reasons I think we find ourselves here is because we typically underestimate the insidious, um, subtle, nuanced, nuanced nature of sin, how pervasive it is. Um, and last time we talked about the personal nature of sin and the systemic nature of sin, but I'd like to table the conversation about systemic nature of sin for the next podcast and just talk about how sin impacts, affects us as persons who are followers of Jesus Christ, after all. Mm -hmm. um, my hunch is that we uh, live out practically a Pelagian soteriology, and by that I mean we think we can decide when and how and if to sin. Hmm. But that's not really true to the Christian faith as we have received it. So I'm going to stop there and allow Beth or Tara Beth to respond to that comment that we kind of believe we are, we have the moral authority to decide not to sin and that the source of sin is really uh, in our will. Yeah. I mean, we live in a world that has been um, disrupted. Shalom has been disrupted. Um, that that shalom of being in harmony with God, being in harmony with one another, being harmony with creation is the backdrop. It permeates the world that we live in. It permeates the air that we breathe. It permeates the relationships that we're in. And whether we are aware or not, um, it is impacting our lives and the people around us. Now, of course, tilting our lives towards the vision of shalom, believing that resurrection is impinging on the present, believing that that future eschatological reality that we're all hoping for is impinging on the present. Like, yes, like we open ourselves up to that. We pray for thy kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, in our relationships as it is in heaven, in our institutions as it is in heaven, in our churches as it is in heaven. And yet... Um, Brokenness and this disruption of shalom is is still reality. Yeah. And so I think sometimes we find ourselves where we are because we don't appreciate well enough that in that prayer for the kingdom to come is also a prayer of confession. Yeah. Forgive us our trespasses. We don't, and we don't want to confess. Um, we really struggle with that, and I think a lot of that is we're looking through a real distorted lens. Um, 
a lens that at times props us up mm. much more than we want to mm. admit. Mm. Um, and I think that, I, th- I really think that social media perpetuates this and that we, we try to project it too. Mm-hmm. We work really hard to project that everything's together. I mean, social media tells us to not live in this confessional posture. It tells us to project something that's not always real. So we are posturing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how fallen are we, Dr. Beth Felker-Jones? <laughs> it's a hard question, isn't it? Um, kind of the classic categories say that outside of Christ, um, we're unable to not sin. That is, Correct. that is, we can't, yeah. we can't but be sinners because um, we need healing. In Christ, we receive that healing, and new possibilities open up to us. And sometimes, how often, in what cases? But sometimes we are able to not sin through the gracious presence and power of the Spirit, right? Who uh, is in us and with us. But how and in what ways and what are we aware of and what are we not uh, is really tricky, right? As Tara Beth was just saying, we're, we're living between the space of uh, the now and uh, the future in which uh, we'll be fully and finally healed from sin. Um, and without that full and final healing, uh, it can be very easy to turn blind eyes to our own sin, especially right? Um and, you know, different Protestant traditions think about this differently. Uh, Mark and Tara Beth and I are Wesleyans, right? Uh, our tradition uh, tends to be optimistic here about how much we might be able to not sin. And I love that optimism because it's an optimism about the Spirit's work in our lives. But if your tradition thinks that uh, probably people are pretty holy in your church, it can be all the easier to um, ignore it when, when things aren't holy. Um, and that's not you know, a problem restrained to the Wesleyan tradition. So I think we sometimes try to neaten things up Mm -hmm. uh, so that we can pretend that we're not still struggling under the weight of sin as we are. So, yeah, we sort of, um, like, I'm thinking we define sin as a list of things those people over there do, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe they smoke and drink and fornicate. Um, And if I don't do those three things, then all is well. (laughs) Um, Don't smoke, don't drink. Don't chew. Don't go with girls who do. Something like that. Yeah. There's right? the list. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, it, it's really nice to think I'm not smoking all as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's never that simple. Um, so, so in our tradition, and I, and I do think it, I, I agree with you, it's not cons- restricted to our tradition, but our tradition uh, incl- uh, was inclined to believe that acknowledgement of sin was acknowledgement of a failure that we had control over Mm -hmm. um, and that we were justified by our holiness. Mm -hmm. Um, In our tradition, we kind of inverted justification and sanctification. We didn't really think we were justified until we were fully sanctified. Um, We had to be holy in order to get to heaven. The the least best part of our tradition said that. But um, I think culturally, uh, evangelicals, do not think of themselves as still needing atonement, mm-hmm. still needing confession, if how often confession is practiced in the typical evangelical church. Um, and we do tend to, as Beth said, 
kind of categorize the sins so that we are exempt from the worst of them. Um, and there is not a practice of confession among evangelicals as a matter of course. Mm -mm. Um, our tradition, for example, uh, and the, the American holiness tradition, um, in one of the uh, holiness books that I read as a college student, said that when we're praying the Lord's Prayer, we could exempt ourselves from forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us because being entirely sanctified meant that we did not sin. That's kind of the, the worst of our tradition there. Um, but again, we find ourselves blindsided because we underestimate the sin in the, the sin in our own lives and the sin that is potentially in others. Is that is that all right to say? Mm -hmm. Seems right to me. And I think there are people who uh, are always suspicious of others. I can't be that way. And so the blindsiding comes, sure. right? I want to believe the best of people, particularly of um, those who are you know, part of the family of Correct. God. Um, and I think believing the best in people is a right practice. It, it is a right it, practice. It lets us, you know, treat each other uh, well. Uh, but then it is really, really hard, right, when a member of the family hurts you. Um, and unfortunately, most hurt comes from inside families and not outside families, right, um, both in the more biological sense of the metaphor and in the sort of bigger uh, bigger sense as well. Um yeah, uh, it's not easy. It's not easy. And I even wonder about if we were to imagine a community of confession. All right. If we were to imagine institutions and um, communities, churches that have this as part of the practice, I'm wondering what needs to be in place for that to happen. I, I'm thinking you know, safety. And grace, and so, you know, it's it's easy to put a lot of onus on the individual who's done the sin, right? But if we if we believe that it's also systemic and it's cultural, to a degree, we ought to all own it at times. And now I'm not I'm not talking specifically now about what is happening at Northern, but I'm just wondering out loud here about the kind of culture that we create and whether or not we have created gracious, safe spaces for confession to happen. Because a lot of the reasons why there is a fear to confess of our sin, number one is, I mean, we could just talk about, you know, blatant ignorance where we don't, we don't want it. We're apathetic about it. We don't, we don't right. care. You know, we're about consumption. We're about me and uh, my gain. And so we're apathetic. But I think there's another one is, is well, will, will God embrace me? Right. Will God receive me? Mm -hmm. Will there be grace? Right. But not just God is church, because when the right? church, when we yeah. confess mm -hmm. within the church, grace is extended through the community and the people of God. And so we have to ask ourselves as the church, are we creating those kinds of spaces for grace to be extended to those who confess? I've been envious of uh, AA because they start every meeting by confession, with mm -hmm. confession. Mm -hmm. They stand up and they say, hi, my name is Mark and I'm an mm -hmm. alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And then they have a ritual of absolution, 
-hmm. in the simple response on the part of the community, they all respond by saying, hi, Mark. Mm -hmm. um, and they never not do that. They always do that. Right. Even if they haven't had a drink in 20 years, they always start with confession and absolution. Mm -hmm. And I have been envious of AA because they get to do that. I oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go, go, go. I'm always happy when we receive communion uh, in the United Methodist Church. If we use the liturgy in our hymnal, we say a prayer of corporate confession. That's right. Uh, and then the pastor That's says, right. in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And mm -hmm. we reply, in the name mm -hmm. of Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. you are forgiven. Um, that's not all the confession we need, but Correct. it's it's a lot. Um, it it goes a long way. Liturgy forms. It yeah. forms the people. And so if we can't have confession in our liturgy, um, then we're going to, I think, what are we forming our people to? And I think it's also the case that um, perhaps a broad corporate confession is appropriate in the general worship service, and we need smaller and more intimate contexts for safe, specific uh, confession. Yeah. Um, my husband's in a, a Wesleyan band meeting. Um, they meet on Sunday nights and ask the traditional questions to each other, which are all about confessing your sins. That's it. Um, it's a it's a miniature liturgy, right? Um, I don't remember them all, but there's a couple that always stick out at me. Is there anything you don't want to tell us? Oh. I mean, yes. Yes, <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, what have you thought said or done this week that you don't know whether it's a sin or not? Right? Mm. Uh, which invites then that group to help you think it over, right? Um, so uh, I joke with him a lot about whatever he's saying to his group of guys as they, they confess to each other uh, uh, weekly. But I know that uh, in that small group, they have been able to experience, I think, that kind of safety that can be harder in a bigger context. Well, um, and it's also powerful because within community, they are helping hold up that mirror mm -hmm. to reality. So much of confession has to begin with self-awareness and examination. And I think that, you know, within that kind of band, there's a corporate examination that's happening. But even when we think about systemic and cultural sin, like I've been saying for the longest time at the church, like we have got to figure out a way to have corporate examination. And that's only going to happen through listening, um, listening to the spirit, of course, but also listening to the community around us and how we might be abusing or misusing or our power or have ignorant power. And it goes back to, I think at the heart of it is um, where we think our justification comes from. If the Lord is our justification, and if we really believe that, that he's our vindication, then we have freedom then to be honest and confessional. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if we think that we need to justify ourselves before the Lord, then we will not find freedom and space to confess and we will then resort to resort to justification of ourselves, mm -hmm. um, which I mean, and part of me thinks that's going to be the criteria. If you if you are justifying yourself, then you don't need Christ's justification. Who doesn't want to justify themselves, right? I mean, I think for a lot of us, the work of a lot of the Christian life is learning to relax into the fact that all is ours in Christ and that we don't have to self-justify. Um, mm -hmm. But boy, the temptation comes back up again and again to, mm -hmm. to explain if you just knew why I did it, right? Then you'll see mm -hmm. uh, that that all is right in, in my eyes. 
Um, and that's you know, something Christians have, have wrestled with through the mm-hmm. centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's why we need to talk about justification by grace again right. and again and again, I think. So um, we need the community to tell us who we are. Mm-hmm. We need to listen without getting defensive. Some critiques will be fair. Some will be unfair. Um, one of the best responses to a critique I heard was, if that is all you can see that's wrong with me, then I'm doing really well. There is so much more <laughs> wrong with me than just that. I need to conf- I need to be forgiven for so much more than you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But just this, uh, the, if I'm justified by Christ, then I am free to confess. We need the community to, to, to hold the mirror up to ourselves. And we need to believe in Christ's justification sufficient for us to say, uh, Lord, have mercy. Right. The, the power of our faith is Christ justifying us so that we can be forgiven and sanctified. That's the power of our faith, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So that we don't have to be pretentious. We don't have to justify ourselves. We don't have to prove ourselves. We can just be as we are, being forgiven, being called to holiness, being called to Christ-likeness. But the way way to that end is not through self-justification. It is through confession. So let's say that I am called on a sin against a staff member. It's not beyond the possibility that I would sin against a staff member, mm-hmm. that I would exercise power in a way that was not respectful or not honored. It's, right. It's not if a leader sins against a staff member. It's and when. It's quite, yes, correct. No leader wants to do that. No. Well, let me say it differently. No leader who is a devout follower of Christ and who loves their staff wants to do that. Mm-hmm. So there's embarrassment, a little bit of shame, and an initial defensive posture, right? I didn't mean to, if you only understood, it was for your good. I have global vision, you don't. But the response to having sinned against another is not self-justification. That mm-hmm. is not the way forward. The way forward is confession, is examine, as we talked about last mm-hmm. week. Mm-hmm. And we ought not to think that we're above confession ever, even as, especially as leaders. Because the courage it takes to call a leader to account is, is a, I mean, it it takes a lot of courage to do that. So we were having a conversation today at church with my staff about it seems to be uh, an epidemic of pastors who are, that's, that's too strong. We, we, I mean, within the Christian world, I mean, it is, a, there it is feels like that. so it many feels stories like that. of mm-hmm. abuse of power by pastors. Yeah. Unaccountable, some of them unelectable, mm-hmm. appointed. We are having this conversation and um, I'm going to say this. I have, I have, we are a church of refugees. We are a church of folks who have been hurt by other churches. A children's pastor suffered under abuse of power by a pastor. 
uh, worship leader who uh, suffered under uh, uh, power abuse by a pastor, uh, which means that I have to, as their pastor, serve them toward redemption. My children's pastor, for example, said, I'm never going to trust another pastor again. I'm never going to go to church again. I'm never going to serve in the church again. Those are the three vows she made. And so I determined that one of my tasks for her was to help her learn to trust a pastor, that she could trust a pastor again. Mm. So what, what I said was, it seems to me that my staff give me more direction than I give my staff, mm. which is which is operationally true. They, my door's open, they come and talk to me all the time. Mm -hmm. And I lead that way. I lead by listening mm -hmm. to where they think we should go. Mm -hmm. And her response to me w was to rub her fingers together as if she were doing a violin mm -hmm. and saying, oh, pa poor Pastor Mark, giving, <laughs> getting so much direction from his staff, <laughs> which was exactly the right response. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is incumbent upon leaders to be the most confessional mm. regarding who they are mm. because they're leaders. Yeah. I think about this as a parent, as a teacher, yeah. uh, how important it is right, to, to confess and uh, to be honest about apology. Uh, those aren't things that teachers are traditionally supposed to do, right? Um, but... There's there's no way through with without being honest when one has made a mistake and one or or actively sinned uh, and one will one does right um, sin is big and confusing and complicated and uh, we can't pull ourselves free from its reach. Um, I not too long ago I was in therapy reflecting with my therapist who loves Jesus very much, and we're often talking about it through the Christian lens, but I was lamenting in therapy that I had said something to my son that was very harmful. Um, it was related to food and his body, and it didn't come across in a way that I was proud of. And she said to me, and I, and I knew it right away. I knew it right away. It came out of my mouth, and I thought, if only I could just take everything back, I said. And she said, she said, so what'd you do? I said, I took him by the shoulders. I looked at him in the eye, and I said, I just said this, and here's why that's wrong, and here's what's really true about you. And I was sharing this to her because I was so upset with myself, and she said, but Terabeth, what you got to understand is healing began in his mind and repatterning and rewiring began in his mind the moment that you, as a parent who held the power, confessed that you were wrong and that you said something that you did not intend to come out and it's not true. And just imagine the healing work that could be done in the church if leaders are the first to confess. We think it somehow compromises our ability to mm -hmm. lead. Um, uh, but it, it also betrays a misunderstanding of what we're called to do. Mm -hmm. When Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ, we sometimes interpret that as uh, 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 Paul saying that I have realized this perfectionist ethic and therefore I am worthy to be followed as if I were Christ. Mm -hmm. 
But follow me as I follow Christ would be following Paul as he leads confessionally. Follow Paul as he seeks the forgiving grace of God. Follow Paul as he humbles himself before the Lord. Um, maybe our leading ought to be a leading toward the forgiving grace, into the forgiving grace of God. Amen. You asked, how do we create safe spaces for confession? Um, I'm not sure we would recommend that pastors begin confessing because their churches may not be safe places. Sure, sure. But how a pastor receives the confession of people or how a pastor responds to sin in people's lives mm -hmm. um, indicates whether or not people can confess mm -hmm. or be themselves. Mm -hmm. But sin still impacts the believer. Yes? does. It does. Tricky for us Wesleyans, but absolutely. Um, it absolutely does continue to impact mm -hmm. us. Um, and it impacts us individually and personally, but also in ways that are bound up with others and structures and so on. And you can't always sort all that out. It's nice to say individual here, systemic there, and that helps us think the thing mm -hmm. through. Right. But we can't always really say, no. here's the part that's this and here's, that's here's right. the part that's, right. uh, that's that. So good. Um, and there's always going to be parts we don't see at all. It uh, simply uh. can't see at all in the times and places uh, we're in. Um, but may we be a people who, instead of saying it's out there, it's those people, instead say, search me, oh God. Search my heart. Hold up that mirror. Recognize who we are before a very holy God. And such an important reminder as this is a season of Lent, as we are together journeying to the cross. And today is Friday, two weeks from today is Good Friday, where we are reminded of the crucified Lord who took on that burden, who took on that sorrow, who took on that sin, and a moment. And so pastors who are doing the hard work of leading, mm -hmm. um, let's remember that the Lord is our justification. That's right. The Lord is our sanctification. And um, the we, Lord is our safe context for yes. confession. The Lord is our safe context for Hallelujah. confession. And um, let's lead our people to a knowledge of the grace of God. Amen. Mm -hmm. Amen. We'll talk about the impact of sin on systems next time. But until then... Until then, thanks for listening to The Pastor's Table. We're grateful that you leaned in with us on a really complicated um, subject. And we pray that we as pastors and leaders, that we would let it start with us, that we would be people that would recognize who we are before a profoundly holy God, that we would hold up those mirrors, that we would practice examination and confession. Um, and so... If this, if this episode blessed you, if you were encouraged, maybe you want to share it with someone. Uh, and we love hearing from you. Visit us at thepastorstable.com and join the conversation. And until next time, may God bless you and nourish you. May God extend grace as you come before a safe God, as you come before, yes, a holy God, and as you come before a gracious God and confess. Just remember, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and we're 
will forgive us all of unrighteousness. So until next time, may you be blessed.